the Baha'i faith, good deeds, nice people, and a history of being persecuted, abused, and insulted, let's face it, not everybody appreciates the teachings of the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith encourages racial unity and interracial harmony, so racists don't like it. The Baha'i faith upholds the equality of women, so sexists don't like it. The Baha'i faith proclaims the harmony of science and religion, so the superstitious don't like it. And because the Baha'i faith teaches that tolerance and love are the very foundations of a healthy community, extremist fanatics don't like it. So, if you're a racist, sexist, superstitious fanatic, chances are you won't like the Baha'is at all. But if you have an open mind and a kind heart, hey, call us. You sound like a Baha'i already. For more information on the Baha'i faith, simply look in the phone book under Baha'i, B-A-H-A apostrophe I. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program, produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network, I am the legendary Burl Bear fact-checker Mark C.G. Boyers, sitting next to me. America's premier true crime podcast now in our 13th year of changing absolutely nothing except the audio processor. And on the phone, a man of many talents, a man with a past, a man with a presence, and his future is not all used up. John Murray. Good afternoon, Burl. Good afternoon, John. You know, I'm excited to have you on the show. You haven't been on since uh, last year. So that's so I was out there uh, promoting my last book. Well, Never say last the, book. Say most book, recent. Yeah, <laughs> that is actually, uh, actually, it's not the most recent because I just released Rubdown about a month and a half or so ago. But I, uh, in early uh, 2020, I put out As Long As I Have Lips. Yes. So that's what I was on the show promoting at that time. Yes, lips are important. <laughs> very important. Loose lips sink ships and tight lips can give pleasure. <laughs> the FCC is closed on the weekend. Uh, now, where were we? Uh, I, I promised the audience in one of my earlier blog posts that I was going to ask you to tell one of my favorite stories that I heard you tell when you were live on stage in, I believe it was Burbank or Glendale, mm-hmm. Pasadena or somewhere. And that's it was about. Burbank. It was yeah. at Flappers, yeah. 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 When the boss came to you and was under, uh, I guess, the. Uh, potential indictment by the federal government. And he had a tape, a very incriminating tape. And you listened to yes, it, sir. and you were able to tell something very important. Can you tell us that, that story? That is true. Okay, what, the, what that was, uh, wow, you get right to it, don't you? Yeah. Uh, in, in my book, the, it's actually my memoir called The Boss Always Sits in the Back, a memoir. And uh, in it, I... Uh, I grew up in a family that was back east, what you would call connected. But because I uh, I had grown up uh, wanting to be a musician at the time, and, and certainly, as you can attest, you know, being a young kid in the 50s and, and having that as your soundtrack and then coming into the 60s with all of the music that happened, uh, at a very early age, I began uh taking guitar lessons 
uh, from the time I was seven until I was 21. So I was quite adept at, at reading music and sight reading. So uh, at the time, I was uh, in the early stages of being a session musician, and this was during a time, if yeah, certainly Burl will recall, when things in recording studios uh, were done on tape. There was no digital at that time. Uh, so, uh, so if you were good at what you did, you, you heard, you were able to hear edits or at least be able to determine when one could have happened, uh, by, so getting you to that point, uh, when the local, I shouldn't say local, but the guy who ran Northern New Jersey for the Genovese family, uh, he found out through my godfather, my cousin, that I uh, was this person who worked in recording studios. I was asked to listen to a cassette that was provided by the F uh, sorry, it wasn't uh, the federal government in this particular case. Ah. It was the New Jersey State uh, Police. Uh, it was the New Jersey gang State of their Police. own. And uh, so they, uh, you know, they had to provide the transcript and the recording uh, that they were going to use. It had to provide it provided in discovery. So it wound up in my hands, and uh, I got to listen to this recording, uh, which, if you want to know how I came up with the title for my book, folks, I highly recommend you get The Boss Always Sits in the Back. And uh, so uh, while listening to these recordings, not only did I just determine uh, that there could have been splices there, one of the big mistakes that were made at the time was that uh, they did take sections out, they juggled sections around, and they forgot to consider the ambient noise uh -huh, in the background. Yes. Things that, things that were happening in the background besides the conversations uh, that were being uh, uh, switched around and, and cut and pasted in there. And, uh, and then, of course, at the time, again, this was uh, a time before, before the technology really existed for digital, uh, for digital work, uh, I had an engineer uh, from the studio, uh, an unbiased third party, uh, come in uh, and literally used, if you remember, Burl, you remember oscilloscopes? Yes, I certainly do. Okay, so they, they literally hooked up the oscilloscope to uh, various parts of the recording, slowed them down a little bit, and every time that there was an edit, the scope spiked. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of gave it away. So we, so because of what I did for this guy, uh, which at the time he was facing 40 years in jail uh, for everything from uh, extortion, embezzlement, uh, racketeering, and murder, uh, the the judge had to throw out the case once it was determined that the evidence was tampered with, and uh, I saved this guy from from that, and uh, and so because of that, he looked kindly on me. I bet. Uh, well, for the rest of his short. Next thing you know, you're opening for the Beatles in Shea Stadium. <laughs> uh, well, they had been broken up a long time by then, but uh, boy, wouldn't that be nice? Though he did offer me at some point. 
he uh, actually early on he said to me, "Oh yeah, uh, so that's what you do." He says, "Do you want to play with Frankie Valley or Jay and the Americans?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, that's okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for the offer." <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fabulous story because I, it always would bug me. I listened to commercials. And I could always tell where the edits were in the audio tracks, the narrator. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes they're not, even in digital, they're, it's almost obvious. You can feel them practically in the digital. Mm -hmm. I, get, I like the old razor blade and that little white splicing tape. <laughs> that's, that's exact. On, on the metal block. Yes, yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah, yeah. Used it many, many times in my studio. In fact, there was a studio called the Sea West. They would bring me in when they had multiple takes of the same song and have me physically edit them together. You know, the different pieces. <laughs> that splicing tape, you know. But boy, yeah, if, if yeah. you could do it well, and I could, you you know, you would need that oscilloscope to tell where it was. Exactly. And and that's uh, and that's what we used and uh, that sort of gave it away. Uh so but that's the story on that and that's just a slice of these <laughs> stories in uh, The Boss Always Sits in the Back, folks. Uh, you know, Burl, Burl could tell you, I, I, I believe, yeah, you definitely read it when, oh, yeah. it, when it came out. Yeah, that was uh, my first of what is now five books. So. Fantastic. Uh, the one thing I, one yeah. of the many things I like about you and enjoy about your work is you don't put yourself in a genre box. That is correct. Uh, you know, uh, most writers... Uh, most writers, you know, they find that one thing that they either enjoy writing about or they're good at writing about, and they follow that. And I guess I just have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm any better at it than they are. I'm just saying that I, uh, I have stories uh, from, that come from many different directions and uh, just really... Uh, just tell about uh, uh, people's lives. That's it. I, I tell the stories that include the lives of people uh, and how they are used, or maybe how, and then how they succeed out of out of all of that. Uh, even, and, but the genre. It's like you said, and I appreciate that. Uh, the genre, uh, such as the boss, always sits in the back, is a true life memoir. It's a crime story, and it tells it tells the story of one of the greatest scams that hit Las Vegas during the late 1970s or the mid-1970s that actually changed gambling laws for what would become casino rules across America after that. Uh, and then uh, with Dead Fellas, my next book, I had a bunch of those real mob stories left over that just didn't work within the boss. They just didn't work. So I used them in what became a mob parody and a horror comedy. Uh, and, uh, and it just, it, uh, it's a great story. It, it took off, uh, a little slow when it came out because people just didn't understand how could he write this great, you know, uh, mob story about this Las Vegas scam and growing up in this family, and then all of a sudden, you know, change it to uh, <laughs> to a, a, a mob comedy? But the thing is, uh, so what had happened? 
So, okay, it took off a little slow. That, that was okay with me. Uh, but uh, the next book, which came out a year later, which was The Delivery Man, which was a vigilante murder mystery. And that brought in a lot of people. And when that happened, I, there was a, a, a definite increase in sales uh, of, of dead fellows. Right. They go, they go back and read. want to read your other stuff. They find a yeah, book they you like. Know, people might have read The Boss, you know, and they liked it a lot. And then they read uh, The Delivery Man, and it caused them to say, well, let's give this other one a shot. Right. And, and you know, they certainly enjoyed it. And I'm not going to bitch about that. And I certainly hope I didn't. Do anything wrong by saying bitch. No, this. So. Like I say, the FCC is closed on the weekends, so we're, uh, good. We're, we're fine. It's interesting being is that you can get locked into into something, uh, and almost yeah. every author, from you and I and the rest of them, always want to stretch a little bit. They always want to try different things and do different things within a genre, and quite often it's like typecasting. Uh, uh, you know, the, the you, uh, you nailed it. You nailed it. It's it really is. Once you get in there, the, it's the industry. It's um, and it's interesting. I said this in a in a recent article or, or interview that's going to be published in an article in the next handful of days. But it's the industry. It is uh, if you have an agent, if you have a publisher, they don't want you to stretch outside of where they know you can earn your money. You know, and and they sort of—I don't want to say, say that they uh, that they stifle you or cause you to st you don't stagnate, but you know they they sort of would they prefer prefer that you didn't, and they would prefer you sought <laughs> exactly. a different publisher for that stuff. Exactly, and so that's that's the that's the one of the reasons why. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I don't, why I don't have an agent, but it certainly, it certainly adds to it. Uh, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to believe that now that I have five books out, uh, you know, some legitimate agent, you know, will go, ah, you know, these, these, uh, stories don't suck. <laughs> uh, you know, people yes. certainly yes. enjoy them. Uh, he's been selling them and touring on these books for a couple of years. Uh, so, so there's that, you know, there's that, but certainly, uh, an, an agent, uh, would prefer that you, uh, make a money right within, away. <laughs> yes. Yeah, stay within the genre. You be, it's easier to sell you that way. You know, if you do something that you're, that you don't have a success in, it's, uh, you know, they have to work a little harder. And, uh, you know, God forbid they, they want to work a little harder to make their 15%. Right. So it's, it's a difficult situation. My nephew, Lee Goldberg, who I've had on the show, uh, he has a publishing company. And they, one of the specialties of his company is that, let's say, uh, well, they take me, for example, although I'm not with him as a publishing company. Uh, if I'm, I'm known for true crime, but I also write an occasional private eye mystery. Or a pop right. culture piece, uh, and that's a different publisher because the, the the true crime publisher isn't interested in publishing <laughs> your private eye mystery from me. Exactly, exactly. And you know what happened though with me, Burl, and you know you could take this for what it's worth, folks, uh, especially those of you who would even consider 
becoming uh, a writer and a self-published author. When I decided to uh, uh, go out and try to get representation for the boss after the uh, manuscript had been edited and made to look pretty and, and all that, uh, I, I was, as you probably remember, bro, I was living in L.A. at the time, and uh, I had been getting hit with a lot of what was called, I had hit the gray wall. I had I had uh, reached, I, I was now at an age where being in your 50s, mid-50s, uh, you are trying to do something that you should have done in your 20s and 30s. Exactly. Even though I... I said to them, you know, how the hell can somebody in their uh, 20s and 30s write their memoir when they <laughs> should be out at that age doing whatever it, it is, is they're going to write about later? <laughs> yeah, you know, and and but you know they didn't want to hear it, and and uh, at the time, <laughs> at the time, you know, I was up against people like. Um, uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. And uh, and the kids from uh, the the two kids that put out books from uh, Jersey Shore, Snooky yeah. and uh, Snooki, yeah. the the situation. Yeah. So you know it it was very bizarre of of trying to get representation uh, for uh, for for a memoir at that time. And a lot of show business people do their memoirs to discover the exact same thing. Exactly. Everyone wants to know about my life. No, not necessarily. It has to be marketed properly. And that's, that's one thing. Right. I, another thing I'll compliment you on, and that is you know how to market your stuff. You know how to get it out there, draw attention to it, speak about it, and get it sold. And people enjoy Thank it. Thank you. I mean, you know, it doesn't do you much good if you get it out there and people don't like it. You know? Exactly. <laughs> that's right. It's one thing to uh, to be able to go out there and promote your product if it's not a good product. It uh, sorry about that, <laughs> folks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and I'll tell you where that came from. Uh, as I talk about in The Boss Always Sits in the Back, and as we spoke about earlier, uh, in the, in the, uh, by the, uh, early 70s, right after I got out of high school, uh, your bands were performing at places. Uh, but other than the local newspaper, who would, you know, put in what bands are playing at what clubs and stuff, you needed to have this uh, pyramid type of uh, network that you let certain of your band's fans know where you were playing and uh, they would call, you know, it's like you tell five people who they tell, you hope five people, and, and so on and so forth, so that you could put 200 people in a club right, when you're right. pay, playing. And this was obviously well before uh, the Internet. Uh, so, you, you know, you had to be able to promote whatever it was you were doing uh, besides being able to do what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it's like anything else. Uh it, if if you promoted your band and your band wasn't good, well then nobody would go to see you the Again, next week. Yeah, once would so be you, enough. You know, so the good part was the band was always good. You know, we always did well with that, and and then we learned 
the guys uh, or the whoever was in the bands at that time learned how to market the best they possibly could to bring in the biggest numbers that they could. And so uh, come the uh, late, uh, sorry, the mid-80s, you know, a time came in my life, again, Burl, you'll probably relate to this, where you had to go, you know, am I going to be this rock and roll musician, uh, side, you know, session guy, who in another couple of years I'll be I'll be kicked out because some other kid is on my ass just like I was on some right. other guy's ass twelve years earlier, you know, and and so I I took uh, you know I took a shot in the mid eighties and I got into the corporate world and it was simply because of my stage ability to perform on stage for a hand, uh, several hundred people at a time that uh, in the corporate world I exceeded uh, by doing just that, by making presentations at conventions and seminars uh, and conferences to you know, several hundred to a couple of thousand people about the, in, the corporation that had hired me to talk about their uh, payroll-deducted life insurance Oh, programs. boy. Oh, boy. That's exciting. I know. And, you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong. It, 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 it may not sound exciting, but I made it made exciting. Made it exciting, and, yeah. And these were the days when, uh, you know, we didn't have, you didn't have uh, whatever it is, that, uh, PowerPoint. Well before, you were still using the overhead projectors, uh, you know, to, to talk to these groups of people about whatever it was you were presenting to them. And I, you know, and certainly life insurance uh, is not something that has a happy ending. <laughs> no. But I had to Are make you it, dead yet? I had to make it. <laughs> as entertaining as possible for the, you know, 20 minutes that I was going to be on stage that would I'd have their attention span. And so I, I just exceeded at that uh, because of my ability to do what I had done as a musician. And the, the funny thing is, you know, here I was, this guy with, you know, just maybe a year and a half of college uh, and no degrees, and I was working with all of these uh, uh, bachelors and masters who could tell you about the you know the percentages used in the actuary uh, uh, <laughs> in the actuarial tables yeah. of their life insurance program. But that's but not exciting, them, John. That's not exciting in a presentation. Exactly. To they tables. couldn't get up and explain it to the groups that you know uh, like I could. They couldn't get up in front of a, a, an audience and explain it like I did. So. Uh, you know, I, I don't have to tell you where the money came from, you know, who got the money, you know. So I did very, very, very well in that because of that. Well, the thing is, when it was when I decided by, by like 1999 and was moving out to California, I really didn't want to grow up to be like these people uh, that, that I was, uh, I was uh, in with now for about uh, 13 years. And uh, so I, I literally you know, stepped away from that and got into uh, writing the manuscript out in L.A. And uh, and the rest, you know, going from there into screenwriting and becoming a script doctor and then being able to promote myself with uh, the, the, the books once I, uh, you know, couldn't get an agent because of, uh, you know, they just felt at the time just having the boss 
This guy's a one-hit wonder. He's got a vanity project. How, why should we invest time with him on this one book, not knowing if he's going to have anything after this? Yeah, once he's told course, the story of his life, what else has he got to tell? Exactly. So, you know, who knew that I'd have, you know, the the, uh, the true crime, I'd have the mob zombie uh, <laughs> comedy sto horror story, uh, the murder mystery, and then after that, as long as I have lips, was a romantic comedy, completely different from the other three. And then, uh, like I said, only about a month and a half or so ago, I put out Rubdown, which is a drama uh, you know, uh, of about a woman who's bent on revenge, who was set up and went to jail for something she didn't do. No. And uh, so there you go. There you go. So, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you do all these things. And I, and I try to emphasize to people who don't think they have stories inside of them. Uh, you do. If you, All you got to do is have the ability to, to, to write it well. That's it. Yeah, this yeah, is Mark yeah. over here. The Mark the Boyer has a question for you. The the material sure. uh, you write seem to center around moral dilemmas. Is moral that intentional? Um, <laughs> it's, you know, you're not the first person to point that out. I can honestly say I don't write with that in mind, but it just seems to be that, you know, all, even... Other than The Boss, which is a nonfiction true story, all the other ones are primarily fictional stories. But in all fictional stories, there are basis of fact. Uh, you know, there, there's all true things that happen that get used in these stories. And I find that to, to a large degree, and like you pointed out, there are moral dilemmas in our day-to-day -day life and things that happen to people sometimes more extreme than what happens to the average person, and that's the story I write. Now, they say that, I don't know who they is, but Burl Bear says, all books are about four things, sin, yeah. redemption, vindication, and cash. Not necessarily in that order. <sighs> books are never about the plot. The plot is just the track that the dilemma runs on. To get into that, you know, I've um, just as uh, you pointed out that I now have five books out in five different genres, I certainly am not one to always follow that rule, it, you know, whatever that rule may be. Uh, but the thing is, it just so happens that the things that we write about fall within those categories, mm. you know. Those are pretty broad categories when you think about it. Yeah, the thing is that sometimes people who are writing a book or want to write a book, most of people say, I should write a book with the story of my life. I say, how does it end? Really? <laughs> is they still alive? Uh, <laughs> people who are writers will write. Nothing's going to stop them. Yep. Uh, maybe you started writing when you were a kid. Maybe you make like my uh, nephew Todd Goldberg, very successful author. Uh, he would make up stories as a little kid with his little, you know, plastic, you know, action figures. He's making up stories, you know, and you just, that's just something you do. Uh, other people at sports, you know, or uh, one thing or another. But if you're a storyteller, you're a storyteller. It's like, in your, right. you know, in your blood, in your genes, and you should keep it there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever okay. it is. But if, you, if you're going to be right, 
you're right. It's just something you do. And whatever the genre. Because like, as we were discussing, it's not whether it's true crime or whether it's private eye fiction or romantic comedy. It's it's what was happening in the lives of the people in the in the story, how they deal right. with issues. And that's uh, and I- I think I think also one of the things I, I know that I try to do, uh, I, and, and I recommend this to everybody, is uh, try to make all of your characters, even even you, if you are one of the characters. But uh, though you want to be unique, you need to write your characters so that the readers can somehow relate mm-hmm. to them in some fashion. Even the bad uh, guys. That, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Or they they may not be able to relate to them uh, in the, by them as themselves, but they may know somebody who's just like that, and they put that character in their mind. Exactly. Mark. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I do that. Also, you know, you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, I, and I started doing this with the boss because I realized. Not all of my readers uh, were going to be Italians. And in the boss, there are a lot of Italian last names, and you can get caught up. You can, you know, you you know, who's Tony? Who's Joey? Who's Vinny? And and so at the back of the book, I put a cast of characters. And and so next to the name, obviously, it would have this one works for this person, mm-hmm. and is this one's related to this. And so it got to be, I, I did that with all of my books. So I find that to be, or at least the readers find that to be extremely helpful. Uh, that in the back of the book should, you know, you know, not everybody could sit and read a book uh, in two, three days, you know, well, maybe now they can because of the pandemic, but, you know, not everybody could, and sometimes they have to put it down and come back four or five days. And then they're lost. Not, <laughs> they have to go back yeah, and remind themselves who's who. Who's who. So, boom, I, you know, you, you make it easy for them, and you give them the cast of characters in the back of the book. Actually, you'll get a kick out of this. One of the things, folks, uh, that uh, is, a, is a constant bit of uh, controversy and humor to uh, people, Italians across America, is uh, what many people call sauce. Uh, There are uh, certain areas of New York and New Jersey, right outside of New York, uh, who called it gravy. And so, you know, we would have macaroni and gravy or spaghetti and gravy where, you know, the rest of the country called it sauce. So in my book, Dead Fellas, I have that conversation uh, when somebody calls it gravy and somebody who I think came from Ohio and wasn't Italian. that sauce. Like, crazy, you know, and... Um, and so, uh, as, as a, to, to uh, as, a, as a service to my readers, in the back of the book, I actually have a, uh, a recipe for a Jersey Sunday gravy with meatballs and sausage. Mm. So uh, sounds good already. And, and people, yeah, people have done it, and uh, and just you know, sometimes I get I get uh, besides I love that they love the book. 
they tried the they tried the recipe and they loved it and okay. and I'm happy with that. So you wind up getting good reviews of your uh, Bobster books on the Food Network. It all, well. <laughs> <laughs> it all works out well. You had a very very important point, and we do have people who listen to this show because they want to be writers, uh, whether it's in true crime or any other genre. And they like hearing writers talk about writing, which we often do here, and that is. You want to make it easy for the reader. You know, if the reader has to start doing, uh, you know, too much work that pulls right. them out of the book, you know, right. to, uh, you're working against yourself. Uh, and a lot of new writers will forget that they know things about the characters that the reader doesn't. All the reader knows is what's on the page. They don't know the backstory that you have in your mind unless you tell them. And that's, uh, I've read a lot of original manuscripts where, well, what, what is this person doing and why? Well, I mean, I don't get it. That's because the author knows, and they'll tell me, well, it's because such and such. Go, but you didn't tell me that. Exactly. And that's, that, that always is a problem when I get asked to edit uh, either screenplays or manu manuscripts. It, it's like, wait a minute, you, you, you give me this information, but you didn't tell us how we got there yeah. or, or that he was there to begin with or she, or, you know, how did that, that wind up in his hand? Uh, yeah. The reader uh, can't solve the mystery if you don't give him all the clues. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, uh, some, you know, a majority of them take the advice and others sort of get pissed off. Because, <laughs> oh, wait, you know, that's true. You, you, you piss off like fifty percent of your clientele, you know, uh, because uh, I, I've, I've never been one to recommend the change of a story or someone's vision. All I ever tried to do was uh, make it read better. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a lot of people they uh, one of the recurring things, whether it's in screenplays or or manuscripts. When when we speak, you know, we we talk, or as we say in New Jersey, T A W K, talk, talk. <laughs> okay, and and when we write, we sort of, if we are good writers and paid attention in in school, we write correctly. Now the problem there is uh, a lot of people will say if they're writing in dialogue, I will go do this where it should be, I'll go do this, right. you know? And and you need to put, you know, when you're writing uh, your, your narration or your direction or any other, kind, any other sections of your prose, uh, yes, write it correctly. Uh, when you're in dialogue and that person in real life would speak in contractions. Right. Uh, Especially if they're having you, a baby. You, <laughs> it's true I would spend time when I was writing my book called Headlock where actually I'm the hero of the story I wrote a private eye novel where I'm the hero and people say why and I said because no one else is going to write a book where I'm the hero so <laughs> I'm going to take advantage of my position here and make myself the hero of the story I spent a lot of time in the McFeely Tavern in Walla Walla, Washington they hadn't changed anything in there except maybe the light bulbs in 50 years. Even the customers were the same. Yep. And I just sat there 
nursing my can of squirt because I don't drink alcohol, <laughs> and listening to people talk, getting the rhythm of their conversations, you know, how they spoke, the dialect, the, you know, all that stuff. So the dialogue would be you know, how people talk. You know, how that subculture talks. Think about it. I mean, think about it. I mean, granted, uh, we can't we can't specifically bring up a book in this case, but because it's easier to talk about a film. I mean, think about some of the those films that really stick in your mind. The first one that comes to mind, in my mind, is Fargo. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that they speak. Uh, Karen Benavalone. Where yeah. they... I, uh, is that was that like Minnesota or something? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a Scandinavian uh, influence. Yeah, with with that uh, with that uh, strange twang to yeah. their voice and 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 up upswing to the end of their sentences. <clears throat> that was that was just fantastic. I mean, and then if you're going to write, uh, you know, about any anything that has to do with, uh, especially in my case, the mob and stuff like that, you know. You you can't write in perfect English. We did not speak perfect English. <laughs> <laughs> Got to tell you a story. It's not about me for change, but Parnell Hall, who's an author, told me a story of an editor he had who was obsessed with uh, so we call it what politically correct gender assignments, and he has this tough, <laughs> hard-boiled private eye saying, "I want you to follow him or her." And then see where him or her goes. <laughs> it just drove him crazy. <laughs> no, people don't talk like that. No, I had I had an editor uh, that every time the word God was mentioned, and it wasn't you know he'd put a small G on it. And so I called up the editor. And I said, "Which one of the lesser known deities is my character addressing? <laughs> you're putting a small G on God, you know." It was very religious. He just thought it was blasphemous to put God with a capital G in the conversation. You got to watch out for you that know, stuff. We, we all, yeah, every every writer thinks that they, you know, every writer wants to be unique. And I applaud that, okay? I applaud that. And the God situation, it's six of one, half a dozen of another, uh, depending on on how you feel and how you feel the majority of your audience is going to feel. Um, then, uh, b- but, y- you know, everybody wants to be unique, and I buy into that. But there are certain tenets that must be followed. There are certain formatting rules. There are certain things that must be followed if you really want your book to be, or your manuscript to be uh, recognized uh, by whoever you give it to, whether it's an, uh, an agent who usually give, or a manager who usually, before they read it, if they're anybody of any repute, they give it to a reader, mm-hmm. and the reader does coverage on it. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then if it gets past the reader to that person, if, if they don't get it, if, they don't, if you don't follow these certain rules... Uh, they sort of just have no problem taking your manuscript or your screenplay and tossing it aside because there are so many others that are just coming across their desk and they want the writer with the least amount of problems. Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting you mentioned that uh, 
Philip, Philip Margolin, who's a very successful author, especially his uh, book, Gone But Not Forgotten, which was made into a TV movie, where they changed all the males to females. You get a diamond. First of all, drop the subplot about the guys getting married. and they, No, no, forget that. And, you know, People worry about their first chapter. I learned a long time, if you have yourself publishing, it's good to worry about that. If you have a publisher, don't worry about that, because whatever the strongest chapter is in the book will be the first chapter. Think of how many books you've read that start off hot and then flashback. Yep. That's why. Because chapter yep. 10 was the best chapter in the book, so you put it first. That, well, that is absolutely true. And that, that is absolutely true. It's you, like you, a, can't, you, you have to be able to grab them within the first five to eight pages. You yeah. have to. The same thing with advertising. It always came down to AIDA. Get their attention, sustain their interest, create a desire, motivate them to action. <laughs> it's always the structure and, and of any commercial. Got, and you got between 30 and, and 60 seconds to get them there. Oh, yeah. You, you, can't, uh, you can't waste time with a 30-second commercial. Now, hey, Mom, beef is on sale today. You know, we got to get right to it. Get their attention, sustain their interest. And it's the same basically with any... Media form, whether it's a book, like look at the James Bond movies, which I do. I love James Bond movies. They always start with an incredible action set piece. Yeah. Yes, that is unconnected to the to rest the of the story. Yeah, well, I mean to the rest of the story, right? Right. right. And uh, you know that's what hooks you. You know you're already happy with the movie. If you walked out after the end of the big set piece at the beginning, you still say that was a great movie, even mm -hmm. if that's all you mm -hmm. saw, which is pretty clever on their part. It's the same line of reasoning as put the best chapter at the beginning of the book. You know, you gotta got to get them, get their attention, and have them happy. And the other thing is, there's a great piece of advice that I got from uh, Michaela Hamilton, who's the chief executive editor at Kensington. I was really having a rough time with the book one time. Uh, one time, yeah. Uh, Fatal Beauty. I thought it was going to be an easy book to write, and it was a very mm -hmm. difficult, difficult book to write. Uh, I mean, just in terms of actually writing it, and she said, you're drowning in this manuscript. I said, yeah, I know. I can't come up for air. She said, did you make the mistake of reading your reviews? <laughs> <laughs> you can have 150 five-star and four-star reviews, but the one you're going to remember is the jerk who wrote the one-star review who says, I usually don't write reviews, and I didn't even read this book, but I think it sucks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, this is how, this is how honest I am. Uh, the boss, <laughs> sorry, I have to laugh at it now. I still laugh at it. The boss did get one, you know, it's all, it's full of five and four and five star reviews. And Very then, happy. And then, <laughs> but then there was the one, one star review. And this is the funny part. The one star review actually came from a cousin of mine <laughs> who was on who was on my mother's side, who actually was, for years, a New Jersey state trooper. Oy. And he took offense to the fact that I had written about the New Jersey state police uh, uh, editing this guy's recording. Ooh. And, and, so, and, and so he gave me a one-star review, and then when I contacted him, he refused to talk to me, so I spoke to his brother and his sister, and it turned out that he didn't even read the book. Yeah, he was told he was told about it from a friend. Like, isn't John Diamore a cousin of yours? 
He was like, yeah. And he said, well, he said this about us. And so my cousin went on Amazon. And, uh, of course, you know, the, I, had him, uh, I had a couple of people talk to him. Yeah. And he removed that. <laughs> he removed that one-star review. Uh, so that was that. The advice that she gave me, she said, Burrow, remember, you write books for people who like your books, not people who don't like them. So if someone gives me a really bad review, and I get occasionally, sometimes they're real. A lot of the time they're fake, they're just trolls. But sometimes people have, you know, different people like different kinds of things, you know. Exactly. And if they don't exactly. care for that particular style, uh, that's their business. They have a right not to like it. And I just write them back and say, thank you so much for your review. And uh, uh, I hope you like my next book better than you like this one. And I promise to keep writing them until I write one you like. You just keep buying them. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. You know, and, and unfortunately, you know, there I do have uh, a fan base so that when the books come out, uh, they actually, you know, they are, they are scooped up and, and, and I don't have to tell you whether they buy it through my website, uh, which I'll give you that in a minute, but if they buy it through my website to get the autographed copies, or if they simply buy them through Amazon or barnesandnoble.com, uh, normally I would say, or their local bookstore, but, yeah, you know, find one. just, <laughs> you know, you know, right, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't have to tell you that Barnes and Noble and Amazon, uh, the people may buy it there, but you don't see their money for like 90 days. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's, that's uh, and the other thing folks thing. is if you buy a book used, the author makes no money. That is true too. That is true too. Please, but if you can buy a new, Mark Boyer has a question or comment. I do. This Lori. is uh, Lori Downey Jr. Hi, Lori. I, I've been enjoying this show so much, and I love John's honesty. It just emanates through the airwaves. And I really wow. appreciate I've I've been sitting on the sidelines listening to the show, and I just wanted to come in and say how much I appreciate this show and how inspired you just you you guys just left me about writing and all the information you gave. It was just it was it was thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. welcome. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. You know, you know. Here's the thing, Lori. When when I uh, moved to L.A. and began writing the manuscript for the boss, um, the first thing I did when I got there, and and of course it was L.A., so there were dozens upon dozens of these. But I I was introduced to and joined a writers group. Okay. And, and I can't emphasize that enough, that uh, writers, even, the, even thinking about writing a book, join a writer's group. See how they do it. Now, granted, there are a lot that just do screenplays, and that's what, not what you want to do. But there are writer's groups. And, and now, because of COVID, um, you don't have to meet as they normally would once right. a week or whenever they did. You do it online on a Zoom call and, uh, you, you know, watch what they do. Learn from them. And that's what I did. And, uh, you, you know, the, 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 what you have to be smart enough to do is quickly learn who the good writers are and who the not-so-good writers are and really focus on what the good writers do. 
Yeah. Now, on the other hand, I always say when I speak at, at high schools and colleges uh, on, in creative writing courses, you could learn as much from the bad writers as you can from the good writers, as long as you're smart enough to know what was bad and smart enough to know not to do that yourself. Right. Where do we okay. find your book, John? Uh, okay, you can go to simply www.john, J-O-N, there's no H, so it's J-O-N-D-A-M-O-R-E.com. You can go to my website, and uh, all five of my books are available on there. Uh, you can read the synopsis for each book, and... Um, uh, let's see. Otherwise, if you aren't interested in signed copies, you're more than and, and you're more than welcome to go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. But they're the same price, signed or not signed. That's great. Cool. Have you figured out how to sign the electronic versions yet? Uh, no, not at all. There is not a serve, there is a way of doing it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is cool. there really? Is yes. there really? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I used to have a link, but like on Kindle, they could have it electronically autographed. Uh, and there's a service of that. I'll get back to you privately when I remember the name. Yeah, you can yeah, do that. Please do, because we do, you know, we do have it in all ebook formats for uh, the Kindle, the Nook, the iPad, the Kobo Reader. Uh, they're all available. Uh, so, and, and, you know, we, we do sell them that way. Oh, it's called uh, Authograph. Okay. Authograph is the name of the service. And, well, okay, uh, yes, let's talk about that off, off, yeah. uh, off, yeah. off radio, and it's off nice. microphone. Yeah. Uh, while we have just a few minutes Well, Lori, thank you very much for calling in. That was very nice of you. And, and really, write your story. Uh, the other thing that I would highly recommend is that think, think about this. This is not 400 years ago when Shakespeare was writing or anybody at that time was writing. And every time you wanted to make a change, you had to <laughs> rewrite your pages. Okay, and it wasn't, this isn't 40 years ago when you would type it out and, or 50 years ago, you type it out and use uh, some, some whiteout mm -hmm. to, uh, to fix up your mistake. This is a really great time to write your book. You don't have to write it in a linear fashion. You can, you know, just have a have a, a folder that is your book, and within your folder have files for each section that you write. You don't have to write them in, you know, this is chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. You just get out what's in your head, and then when you have enough of those pieces in, in separate files, put them together, and, and you'd be surprised how much of a book you'd have. Pretty good. Why don't you tell us, uh, we have a few minutes left, about Rubdown. Rubdown. Oh, Rubdown, uh, you know, Rubdown was actually started as a screenplay uh, that while I was living in L.A. and uh, I, you know, one of the great things about uh, living in L.A. and I was at this point in the valley, uh, maybe... Uh, decade or so ago, maybe just about that, uh, I was uh, getting some screenplays printed. As you can imagine, we would go to these printing shops 
where they would double-side your screenplay because I was having a reading of one of my screenplays. And uh, I needed to have maybe 15, 16 uh, screenplays printed. So I was there to pick up my screenplays, and behind me was this uh, woman who uh, saw my last name, uh, Diamore, and so she started speaking to me in Italian. And I had no concept of how to speak Italian other than to look at her uh, with as cute of a face as possible and say, no capisce, you know. And so the next thing, you know, she started speaking in English, perfect English, uh, you know. And uh, so we wound up just talking. And she told me uh, that she had an idea for a screenplay that she had written about the first 20 or 22 pages. And at that point, I, I wasn't looking to work with anybody. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a couple of things. Number one, always try to be helpful to people because people, uh, like I was saying earlier, by joining this writers group, uh, those people, the good people were helpful to me. And they always want to pass along their knowledge. Good people want to pass along their knowledge. And so that's what I do for other writers. Join a writers group. But in this particular case, I uh, two things. She asked me to read her 20 pages. And, you know, it's a lot easier to read 20 pages than it is to read 120 pages. So oh. I said, sure, send it along. And the second was, you know... She was a, she was a woman. <laughs> yeah, that makes all the difference in the world. We got to go, John. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Go. It's always a pleasure. I'll have you back again, hopefully real soon. 